From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And hello out there in Radio Land. It is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics. In a split-screen edition, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell, broadcasting live from uh, the southern coast of Connecticut. I'm actually up here uh, for the U.S. Coast Guard Academy graduation this week. Uh, congratulations to all the graduates up here. Joining me in stu- well, joining in studio is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. He is the one we know as the uh, Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And getting into studio right now, putting on earphones and doing a impromptu mic check. He is the former Joe Biden political operative. He is the attorney licensed in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia. He's Dan Littner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hello. You left off the 24th Democrat running for president. Apparently, I need to add my name to the list. Well, I'm sure, look, there's still time in the show. You can still do it. Uh, joining us also from a undisclosed location in the northeast part of the country, he is the author of American Politics on the Rocks, former Huffington Post contributor. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Oh, by the way, we've got uh, our producer, Eric Thomas. He's in the cage with uh, Rob the Engineer. Hello, guys. There we go. Hey, we've got a lot to talk about, but we want to start off by uh, what's causing a lot of buzz here in Washington, D.C. There's a lot of things happening in the increasing tension between the White House and Capitol Hill. Let's start with the issue of executive privilege and particularly the issue of uh, the former White House counsel, Don McGahn. Uh, In case you don't know, Don McGahn, who uh, was the White House counsel, the counselor to the Oval Office in the beginning stages of this administration, uh, had given many, many hours of testimony to then special counsel Robert Mueller. Uh, After the release of the Mueller report, excuse me, the... uh, excuse me, Congressional Oversight has asked Don McGahn to testify in front of them. However, uh, Donald Trump has invoked executive privilege, which makes for a really unique discussion when you're trying to get information out of somebody who no longer works for the White House. Uh, The Trump legal team has instructed Don McGahn not to talk to or Uh, appear in front of any committees, that is setting up what seems to be a huge political battle. Uh, Let me go go to um, Rich Rubino if we can. Oh, Rich is still dialing in. Let me go to uh, Dan Lipner first. Dan, this, this is something that we have not seen before and something that is an unusual development. Is this something that's common that uh, that the general public just doesn't see or is this uh truly something that needs to be watched and could be setting up for a possible constitutional crisis um well a couple of different parts of that first uh the executive privilege argument at the moment is a legal fight not a political fight 
um, and the president is on shaky grounds. Uh, worse for the president on uh, these particular grounds is we have sort of seen this before. Uh, Richard Nixon attempted to exert executive privilege on almost everything and consistently was rebuffed. That's an important note, and I believe pretty consistently anytime uh, the Nixon administration uh, had any challenge in court uh, for any claims of executive privilege, he was beat almost unanimously, even all the way up to the Supreme Court when he claimed executive privilege over the Nixon tapes. Um, and that was the, the, the end of his presidency. So the Don McGahn issue is far more challenging since the it's the the details have already been spilt. The Don McGahn spoke to uh, the Mueller investigative team, so which is pretty much an explicit waiver of any claims of executive privilege. You can only hold privilege if you hold the privilege. Once you have waived it, it is gone. You cannot reclaim it. And the additional question as to whether or not the president owns the privilege, the presidency owns the privilege, and whether or not that privilege extends to somebody who ha is no longer in the employment of, let's be clear, not the president of the United States, but of the United States themselves. The counselor, the White House counsel's office is the counselor to the president, however, he is not the president's lawyer. He is technically the White House's lawyer and representing the U.S. public. And one of the details that's been more fully flushed out this week is Don McGahn apparently did just that which you were supposed to do uh, when your client has asked you to do something illegal, um, and that is to resign. It puts you in a more precarious position in, a, in the public sector. In the private sector, if Alan right next to me, if I were representing Alan, and Alan had told me outright he intended to uh, purvey a lie to the court or under oath, while in that context, Alan's privilege to make that statement, he, I would still protect that. I would not be required under law to reveal any of that information. However, I cannot do anything to forward Alan's lie. So my only ability as a lawyer there would be have to, would have to be to withdraw as counsel, which is what Don McGahn did. Um, now the question as to whether or not any information can be withheld, it's already out there. And on top of that, Don McGahn is a private citizen, now, and you now have a challenge between a claim of executive privilege and Don McGahn's First Amendment rights, as well as the not inconsequential. Uh, rights of Congress to know, and that is a real thing. Congress generally has an absolute right to investigate. The parameters what? of of the, the uh, of the Congress's ability are not heavily limited. Congress has the ability to investigate, and the president impeding that ability is really problematic. Alan, you, you've worked as committee staff on oversight committees on the Senate side. Uh, is is this idea that uh, this universal uh, this universal immunity this this universal executive privilege does this seem a little bit out of standard 
for how the White House would normally treat testimony be in front of an oversight committee by White House counsel? I mean, as we've been saying for two years and several months, um, it's <laughs> it's not at all uncommon that we see something new and different from this administration, um, either in, in the way it executes its responsibilities or in its relationship with the Congress. Um, the executive privilege issue here is interesting. Um, it, it's, I, I don't think it's quite as cut and dry as Dan suggests. Um, that is, Dan says, once you've given up executive privilege, you can never get it back. Um, I think that's true on given subjects, but I don't think it's true when it comes to things that, that were not given up. So in the case of McGahn, he gave up a lot. He spent a reported 30 hours. I think he cited more often um, he or his notes that he often would dictate to uh, an assistant of his um, showed up again and again and again and again in the the Mueller report. Um, presumably, that material um, is no longer subject to any kind of claim of executive privilege. What's less clear, though, is whether on that sub on the subject matter therein covered, whether McGann can be compelled to expand on what he said. Um, he can repeat what was said, but it's not clear to me that he can be forced to expand should the president choose to exert executive privilege, or for that matter, if the if the uh, if the Congress wants to move into other areas that McGahn was not asked about in Mueller, um, right. wh- whether the, the, the White House, whether the president could invoke executive privilege. Me- I think he can. Just because McGahn is gone does not, in my understanding of it, I'm happy to be corrected if I'm wrong, um, does not mean that that no that that he can now spill his guts so uh, so to speak on any and every subject anything he's ever seen anything that the president ever said to him on any subject um uh, just because the president made and, I, and as you you may recall I've been I was highly critical in the beginning about this decision to let McGahn right. talk because McGahn was was as close an advisor, was one of the closest advisors and right. one of the closest witnesses, eyewitnesses to so much of right. what went on. Well, let um, me go. Let me go to Rich. Let me go to Rich Rubino here real quickly, because Rich, you know, when we look at this historically, you know, we remember the times of Watergate and that a lot of these questions, which could have been brought to light, were foregone by uh, the resignation of then President Richard Nixon. Uh, Are we going to see this play out? And from a constitutional standpoint, does this need to play out to give us some clarity as far as how far an oversight committee can go in gaining oversight versus what is the privilege of the executive as a whole? Oh, absolutely. It's definitely it's a separation of powers uh, question. You know, you go back to you go back to the Supreme Court in in U.S. versus Nixon. They basically viewed nine to nothing that the president did not have that power. Um, you go back in history. You know, Eisenhower, for example, used it 44 times, um, and then Presidents Kennedy and Presidents Johnson really kind of reined it in after that. 
Um, President Nixon, of course, is known for using it, and then President Ford used it once, actually, on then Secretary, he was Secretary of State and National Security Advisor uh, Henry Kissinger when Kissinger, when it was about the whole issue, remember the Church Committee, and they were investigating uh, Senator Church, Frank Church from Idaho, was investigating uh, whether the whether the whether there had been covert activities and what the U.S. role was, he'd used it in that. President Carter had used it involving um, the energy industry, and then President Reagan certainly um, involved it actually with William Rehnquist when he was, when he was um, being nominated for the Supreme Court, and then President Bush used it a few times, President Clinton, but it was really Eisenhower that used it, I think, the most. I think we're really going to see, um, you know, if this goes to the Supreme Court. I mean, obviously the Supreme Court is a, is a political is an inherently political branch. Um, you know, whoever whoever appointed or nominated the president is obviously conservative justices and more likely to side with Trump, more liberal justices and more likely to side against him. But, you know, the word executive privilege, if you take it from the letter of the law, is not is not implicitly it's not specifically written into the Constitution. So it's really something that is kind of um, and kind of interpreted in terms of how much power the president has. Um, you know, to to tell aides, for example, that they're that you know to ha- that they are having a discussion with him. Um, but that it's not that it's not necessarily that they can't testify over Congress. But I'll just say they go back to President Eisenhower. He said that if somebody that were that if an aide were talking to him at the time had gone before Congress and had told them, you know, he would have fired that aide. So it really is it's a it's a fascinating question about constitutional privilege because it's not specific. The word is not specifically in the Constitution, but I guess it's kind of implied that it's that there is right. um, that there that it is inherently there. Um, right. Actually, well, I, I need to, I need to disagree with one, one of the items. There. So the the idea that the uh, and this is in defense of the courts and and uh, Chief Justice Roberts, the the idea that the courts are going to side with the president just because the president appointed them. That's a dangerous premise. Um, I'm not going to be so naive as to suggest that the that courts don't have a political bent. They absolutely do. Um, however, those bends do tend to focus not on Democrat or Republican, but are in larger uh, macro issues. And in, as far as the issues of federalism go, so this is not necessarily a liberal idea. And, and let me be clear, I believe in a strong executive, um, but I also believe that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And as far as things the founders were absolutely concerned about, uh, a check on the executive was absolutely there. And having sat through many Federal Society uh, speeches and talks and, and meetings and heard plenty of it, the idea that the president can, with carte blanche wave of the hand, say Congress cannot do this, I cannot imagine the conservatives on the court are going to take that sincerely, or I should say the sincere conservative Federalist Society types. And I'm going to go as far as to say that includes Roberts and Alito, possibly Gorsuch as well. I don't know enough about Kavanaugh yet, but the idea that those four, uh, those three Republican appointees are going to side with a strong executive based on their Federalist Society credentials would be a huge step back from any of their previous positions as far as what the Federalist Society views as far as the check on the presidency. So the idea that the courts are just going to side with uh, whatever Democrat or Republican sided with uh, appointed them is is a scary premise. And I would also point what? out that Bill Clinton, when he tried to use the while well, he didn't assert executive privilege to try and hold off the Monica Lewinsky case, he did try to say that the president should should not be required to appear in civil uh, uh, 
and civil right. court for those claims. He lost 9-0, and that included three of his own, own appointees on the court. Right. So that's a real thing. So paying attention to that and even asserting that without evidence is, is a dangerous argument. Alan Moore, we heard the president say the other day, though, that when asked why was he telling uh, Don McGahn, why was his attorney telling Don McGahn to defy the subpoenas, uh, Trump had suggested that his lawyers were trying to protect the institution of the presidency. Do you buy that? Well, no. Uh, <laughs> it's it's it, it's it's too late with McGahn because of what, what we've already talked about, the 30 hours that McGahn spent um, uh, spilling his guts to uh, to, to Mueller. Um, but, having but said, let, me having, jump, let me just jump in. Let me just jump in real quick, Alan. When, when, when he was talking to Mueller, well, let me ask, this, let me ask the question instead. D- does executive privilege extend to his conversation to Mueller but not to – the congressional committee. Well, no, that's the whole problem here. Um, it it once he gave up executive privilege to the investigator to to Bob Mueller and his team, then it became ex- it far more complicated to turn around and say, "Oh, he can't say any more, even about those things he's already talked about." Um, it it he he gave it up he gave it up let's remember why he decided to do that he did it at the urging of his counsel at the time who said we have nothing to hide let people talk let people say what they know we shouldn't be afraid of the truth here and we'll finish this thing up a lot sooner well it didn't work out that way it went on for 2 years um and along the way, the president continued to take other actions, which certainly s- smell like obstruction. I'm not saying it was obstruction. Some people are 100 percent convinced it was. Um, 700 and some odd people are convinced it was, I believe, well, former U.S. attorneys. Fine. Well, and, and are you on that list? I'm sure you should. we should add you to it. I am not a former U.S. attorney, so, but U.S. attorneys tend to be, know what they're doing. So, so you know, all I— it is not established fact that it was obstruction. I'm willing to acknowledge that it looked and 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 walked and talked a lot like obstruction, as I understand obstruction. And Dad's point is very valid that a bunch of people put their names uh, to to a letter saying, uh, if this were a if if what we know about this were said about a an average citizen, we believe it would it would uh, meet the requirements of obstruction Wait, but of Alan, justice. I, I but, and let's not leave off the line that was in the Mueller report that if we could exonerate the president, we would. Well, no, <laughs> right, but, but I go back obviously, to, but, but that but that but that does not say it's obstruction. No, no, that's it, all it, I'm saying. Right, no, and it, and, and it, that that's a fair point, but also a fair point that needs to be lo- looked into, even though it has yet to be stated. Explicitly, uh, was that it was of Mueller's opinion, and Mueller, as as far as I can tell, a complete straight shooter. That because of Department of Justice guidelines saying that you could not prosecute the president, there's something unseemly about accusing somebody of a crime that you cannot prosecute them for, and the reason for not being able to prosecute them is not ju- to guarantee both the accuser and the accused of their day in court. 
So by Mueller making the accusation, he was essentially saying, or not making the accusation, he was essentially saying, it is unfair for us to do this because the president cannot defend himself in court where there can be no finding. Now, if that question is actually falls to the House of Representatives saying this is a political process, as Gerald Ford uh, greatly said during his presidency, the or, or excuse me, while he was in Congress, he said impeachment is whatever Congress says it is, the or impeachable offense is whatever Congress says it is, then in which case it lends far more credibility to the fact that Congress deserves the entirety of the report and the entirety of access to all witnesses to the report. Well, so but let me ask, uh, let me ask, Rich, let me ask Rich Rubino this. Rich, is, is is this an argument that people outside of Trump's base might buy? The fact that uh, Don McGahn did give testimony to uh, to the special counsel, and now that he's not the special, not that he's not White House counsel, now that he is being called to testify in front of a House Oversight Committee, is the argument that a, he doesn't uh, lose executive privilege in front of the House committee. And two, is the fact that Trump's doing this as a defense of the executive branch also an argument that the general public will buy? Um, I don't. I do. Well, I was thinking more in terms of uh, Democrats specifically. I would say just quickly that it was Gerald Ford who was actually talking about uh, Justice Douglas. He was an opponent of when he was in Congress, when he was the House Minority Leader, and he made that statement saying that essentially the impeachment is whatever people say it is, which is a very kind of, I guess you would say, liberal interpretation of it. But no, I think it's I think that um, in terms of the whole executive congressional um, kind of, you know, the kind of executive congressional kind of separation of powers. I think that um, there's been. I think that beginning right after the Watergate period, there was there were there was efforts to rein in the executive power, and I think Dick Cheney specifically, Donald Rumsfeld, who had come out of the Nixon administration and served in the Ford administration, wanted to bring that power back. And I actually think that um, I think that in terms of what you may see in terms of Democrats, more I'm thinking some, for example, some that aren't politicians, someone like an Alan Dershowitz or something like that, may take Trump's side on certain um, constitutional procedures, but. I'm not sure that there is necessarily an appetite for more executive power right now. But, you know, I'll just say this in a little bit of a tangent, but it's fascinating how Congress is so willing to abrogate their power. For example, you know, they haven't declared war, even though constitutionally it says Congress shall declare war. They haven't declared it since World War II. They've been either declaring, they've been essentially um, authorizing the president to use it. The, you know, the Congress voted a few years back in 97, they voted for the line item veto, succeeding their power to do that. And then they eventually the Supreme Court threw it out. And then fast track trade authority would be another example where the president, where the Congress essentially has voted in the past to secede their responsibility um, to vote for to vote for to vote for trees up or down. I mean, rather to put amendments in the trees and saying you can only do vote for up or down. But in terms of the American people, you know, the other question is how much the American people really know about the difference between executive and congressional power. And my guess is that their knowledge is, you know, is their knowledge is generally quite limited because, you know, they have other things to do. And by the way, but that that point is part of the genius of what Speaker Pelosi is doing right now by trying to rein in uh, her fellow Democrats oh, yes. to to walk to slow walk, not to ignore, but to slow walk exactly how you need to go through this. And and unfortunately, I was not alive during the the, the Nixon Watergate hearings. But as as I read the history, uh, I know Alan was. But as as I read the history of it. <laughs> 
the the uh, the original hearing was a disaster, and then Democrats got together and regrouped, and each speaker actually focused on various different elements of the crimes that the president had committed or allegedly had committed. Yep. And that was the process. And the ability to go through in a controlled and organized fashion and say, these are the facts. These are the undisputed facts. And now you're laying it out there as a political process. Now, whether or not it should be a political versus legal process, I, I'm not entirely certain, though, it's, at a minimum, it needs to be a political process. Well, I think, that if you, I think that also Nancy Pelosi is certainly cautious because she saw what happened, for example, in 98 when the Republicans were seen as overreaching in terms of impeachment on, um, on President Bill Clinton. In that year, the Democrats became the first party to actually gain seats in the sixth year of a presidency since 1820 with James Monroe. So she knows the politics of it, even though she comes from a very Democratic district where she says, you know, I drew this glass of water could win in some of these districts. She realizes that the reason the Democrats were in the majority in terms of the House seats they won last time were by winning seats in Kansas or winning seats in Iowa or winning seats in Oklahoma. And those Democrats don't come from congressional districts that are necessarily liberal. A lot of them beat, a lot of them defeated Republicans because of a Democratic tidal wave. And she realizes the politics of that. And she does not want to overreach. Yep. And that's uh, that's absolutely correct. But there's also the balancing act and the the actual substance of what's being investigated and the Clinton Clinton fatigue uh, that percolated around a combination of Whitewater and Monica Lewinsky and as uh, and uh, f forgive me for quoting James Carville here because I don't mean to disparage everyone involved, but what the White House referred to as the bimbo eruptions uh, <laughs> that happened during the Clinton era versus the, the, dare I say, far more substantive issues that are at, at play uh, during the, these Trump questions. Um, that's where the American people get to draw the line and whether or not it, and, and how you want to go engage this as a political process. So is the president's personal life fair game? That's kind of been litigated. Now is the president's public life as far as what he does as president fair game? And I would argue, yes, it is. All right. Well, we're going to keep this discussion going. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk, continue talking about this situation and then the situation with the taxes. Apparently, the courts may not be in Trump's corner on this one. This is Backroom Politics for the Split Screen Edition. We'll be back in two minutes. I got a desperate notion. That's the way I feel today. My heart is aching because he's making a plaything of my devotion. That's the way I feel today. Without any reason or a word to say, that man turned his keys in.
Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hey, we're back. Split screen edition of the best political talk show you never heard of. In studio, we've got Alan Moore, Dan Lipner. Uh, I am up in New London, Connecticut, up in the area for the Coast Guard Academy graduation. Congratulations, class of 2019 and joining us from an undisclosed new england location rich rubino hey uh rich uh i meant to ask you before uh the uh hard opening i we really am glad that you're back uh thanks for joining us on a regular basis now let's uh, get back to business here oh good good excuse me uh slight cough usually i have a cough button on that one um, Dan, let me, let's continue this discussion from earlier. Uh, the, I guess the question now is, is, <clears throat> excuse me, is Don McGeehan's absence and not in defying the subpoena, does, I, I mean, not only is it a large, big middle finger from the administration to, uh, the oversight role that the house plays, but does this set a precedent that basically how subpoenas have no teeth and what can they do to fix that if the, if that's the case well that's part of the reason why this has to play out um yes it is a big middle finger to to congress um and it is going to be a problem that's why i find it hard to imagine if this actually goes to the courts that um, it will be broadly upheld. I can see, to Alan's point, it could be narrowly upheld that the, the, the legal phrase would be the, the, the opening the door. So if you open the door to specific topics that were that McGahn had already spoken to, yes, Congress could legitimately investigate, but they could no longer uh, continue to investigate anything beyond uh, those points. However, in a judicial proceeding, if counsel inadvertently opens the door yeah it's fair game uh you don't get to go oops didn't mean to say that um in which case in theory mcgann could continue to speak so mcgann would be on the spot having to continue to assert executive privilege or uh, conceivably have another white house counsel uh or somebody from the council's office present to assert it on behalf of the president I'm not entirely certain how that would look. Um, it would be complicated without question. It would probably make everyone look really bad um, because a, a well-trained prosecutor and if, and that's asking a lot for the Democrats on, on whatever particular panel he's investigated to appear for uh, to make sure to ask deliberate questions and to have privilege asserted on national television on some pr- on pretty direct questions, while legally it's handled one way, 
politically, that's a disaster. So I think they're going to be able to get him to appear. And just to go a bit further down that line, uh, as far as making people appear, uh, there is the bizarre statement or the bar- bizarre exchange between Barr and Nancy Pelosi where inexplicably uh, the attorney generals asked about whether or not the speaker brought her handcuffs and the speaker correctly said, the sergeant of arms is right over there. Um, there is actually a question as to whether or not she could have asserted the power and said, said arrest him now, in which case you could have had a far more dramatic made-for-TV moment that the Trumpies might not have enjoyed and a standoff between the Capitol Police and the but, Attorney General's Protective Service would have been interesting by itself. Right, but Alan Morris, something like that, it almost seems like it would be begging the question of why did the Democrats overplay that hand? I mean, are, are we getting closer and closer to that line, the Democrats overplaying the hand, the yeah, more and I, more I, we start getting towards a, a court battle? I don't – I look, I don't – I don't think they've overplayed their hand yet. They're trying very carefully not to overplay the hand, not to do something that's going to somehow be helpful uh, to to the president. I mean, that's the whole notion, as we've already said, behind Speaker Pelosi's uh, continued position of saying we're not at an impeachment yet. We're doing an investigation. If it warrants impeachment, that's an option available to us. But we're not starting there. Um, and and then we have all of these different incidents. And in the case of McGahn, we're as 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 Dan says, we're not done with McGahn. McGahn chose not to show up today. Um, the president was making a big point of saying he didn't want him to. Um, I'm guessing there's some private communication between McGahn and the committee trying to figure out how to get past this and and what it wouldn't surprise me if McGann offers what Mueller is apparently offering which is how about uh, some ground rules on what I can and cannot talk about and how about let's doing it privately well the the committee the Democrats want to do it in public they want to humiliate and embarrass and I don't blame them but that doesn't mean that that uh, uh, that that's what the ultimate answer will be with either McGann or, for that matter, uh, with with Mueller, which, as I say, is a is a different conversation. But apparently, it also hinges on this question of is whether it's public or private. So, McGann, I think will 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 have to appear at least to talk about the things that are that are in the Mueller report. I agree with Dan. I think he's going to have to have somebody sitting next to him, representing the the White House, saying. Um, yeah, sorry, we, we need to, to exert executive privilege on that. It would look horrible on television, which is one of the reasons you don't want to do it on television. Um, it, it, but, but that doesn't mean that the, that, the, that the House, the committee, will go along. So this is going to take some time. I wanted to say one other thing, because as we were talking about executive privilege and the fact that most presidents have invoked it more than once, as, as I understand it, only twice has a court actually made a decision to overturn the invocation of executive privilege. One was with Nixon when it said, you have to turn over the tapes. Um, right. 
that he invoked it several times, but as far as I know, that was the only decision. It was a unanimous Supreme Court decision, but that, that one. And then in the case of President Clinton, when he tried to keep his people from having to talk about Monica Lewinsky, the court said, nope, they have to appear. I think those well, are the only we, we two court cases where a president's decision to invoke was, in fact, overturned. Actually, I do have a well, question think, for the for, a, for the group. Well, well, no, I where is John right. Dean on this? I can't imagine the Nixon team was exactly thrilled with John Dean's testimony before Congress. So I, I actually don't know the answer to this question. John Dean testified and gave some pretty damning testimony about what occurred in the White House. This is e- e- even beyond the, the White House tapes. So John Dean was absolutely a junior attorney in the counsel's office. He was absolutely a government employee, and he absolutely testified. What is the, does anyone correctly know the history on this? I, I don't, but and I was trying to figure that out, too. I'm thinking that the president did not invoke privilege. We didn't hear from Haldeman. We didn't hear from Ehrlichman. And they would have they would they would have uh, presumably been held back. Um, and, and not that they wanted to come forward. They both went to jail. Um, but you know, guys, Alan, let me just interrupt real yeah. quick because you know we have a political historian on the line. Rich, do you have an answer for that? I don't know specifically about uh, John Dean in terms of the Nixon administration or what his view would be on executive privilege. No. Okay. okay. Yeah. What we're trying to figure out is whether. When he testified before the Watergate Commission for three to a couple days, uh, very compelling testimony. Um, did the had the president given it, granted him, if you will, permission to do that? Um, what was the president saying about executive privilege? Or after John Dean, did he then say, "Yeah, that didn't go so well. We're now I'm now well, going to yeah. vote." We, it, it, it's an interesting question. Uh, there, there was one thing that, that that Dan, who who admits to to have not not being around when uh, when Watergate occurred, um, uh, and it wasn't because he he was out of town. Um, he just wasn't here yet. Um, but but the the comment that it wasn't going too well for Democrats is not how I recall it. Um, that right. that there the, there was an effort to try to find out what happened, and in, in the famous words of of the late Howard Baker, who would become the the Senate Majority Leader, uh, Senator from Tennessee, what did the president know, and when did he know it? And and that was there was a major effort to, to to try to find out. We know laws were broken. We know money was paid to those people. We know there was an effort to shut everything up. We know there was an effort to get the CIA to reach into the FBI and say this is national security. Leave right. this alone. The question is, what did the president know, and and did he have dirty hands here? And and that was that was the effort. And the and of course there was denial that the president knew. There was not denial that the things went on. It was denial that he knew. But then the question was, what's on the tapes? Right. Because well, the yeah, tapes, will, will, you know, the tapes, the tapes may have the answer. The tapes may have the answer. Right. The tapes may have the answer. And the president said, okay. you can't see the tapes. Yeah, I have um, a comment right. on that. It's, yeah. it's interesting because um, if you look at the polls in terms of how popular Nixon was, Nixon at the time toward the end of the Watergate hearings. His, his approval with the – it was about 50 percent of Republicans supported impeachment. That's Republicans. Um, you look at Donald Trump now, it's about – you know, he has about 89 to 90 percent of Republicans who are opposed to impeachment. And Nixon was demonstrably unpopular. You know, he was he, – he, he left with, job, with a job approval rating of about 24 percent. And even, for example, in 1974, which is the midterm elections – 
Um, can, you know, places like Northwest Arkansas, for example, Bill Clinton almost defeated um, John Paul Hammersmith based on running on the running on a platform of being anti-Nixon. And this was in Northwest Arkansas, a very Republican part of the country. And that year, you know, the Republicans landed up losing about 47 seats, and the Democrats. Um, it was just a benefit for the Democrats. Right. Um, but politically, Nixon was a lot more unpopular, not only with the Democrats, not only with the independents, but with Republicans than Donald Trump is right now. And that's why that gave a lot of leeway to Republicans like Bill Cohen from Maine, for example, on the Judiciary Committee to come out for impeachment because it was in his political best interest. Whereas right now, there's only been one Republican, Justin Amish of Michigan, who has taken, you know, who has crossed the Rubicon and said that he would, then said that we should look into impeachment. But at the time, Nixon, yeah. I mean, Nixon was demonstrably unpopular. Nixon didn't have Fox News. <laughs> no, that's, he true. Didn't. that's true. Hey, I do want to talk about the fact because, you know, we're talking about how there's been twice where the uh, president has invoked uh, executive privilege and the courts have intervened. It looks like now there's a third time on this uh, because over the weekend we had a federal judge uphold subpoenas for Trump's financial records from one of the accounting firms that have uh, done financial management work for the president in his corporate life. Uh, basically, a federal judge has upheld a subpoena for the House Oversight co uh, Committee that Mazars USA must, in fact, turn over the documents to Congress. Uh, it rejected the argument by Trump's outside counsel that Congress had no legitimate ground to demand the documents and also comes back and uh, denies the uh, denies the argument of the president that this also might fall under executive privilege. No, uh, I don't think so. You don't think so? No, what? no, no, not uh, Justin. You're 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 once again getting into trouble on this executive privilege stuff. I just got to tell you, be, well, you, you lost a dollar in our side bet last week. Just just so you I, know, how did I, I, I lose a dollar? How did I lose a dollar? Oh man, you you've already forgotten. So we had a bet. We had a bet on the air, and we apparently got, didn't got, pay off. We got witnesses, and yeah, that's I knew that was why you were out of town today because you owed me that. Or was it a thousand dollars? I can't remember. It was. No, either. it was a dollar. So, it was a so, dollar. I mean, so it, it was a dollar, and you, you. I think it was a Bitcoin. You, you bet. You <laughs> bet. You you bet that the president would invoke executive privilege over his son testifying, and I said, no, you can only you can only invoke it over people who are employees of yours who work for you. So we have this side bet, and and now the the they've worked it out, and Donald Jr. is going to go testify. No, no. I'm, so I'm, so there was no invocation of executive privilege, which was your bet, and right. so you owe me a dollar. Um, I do owe you a dollar, but on the, on the Trump taxes, though, on the Trump taxes, the taxes were not exact. That's not executive privilege. It's a. It's he is arguing that they do not have a legitimate right to come after his in the in the in this immediate case. Um, there was a subpoena for for financial records, not his not his tax returns. The one that 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 the, that the court decided <coughs> yesterday was a subpoena for his financial records, and. He has said no, and a judge said, turn him over. 
it will go to it will but and is given a week for an appeal and court of appeals will make a judgment and this one then they'll decide and the the the, the supreme court will decide if it wants to hear it right. but this, he's trying to say there's no legitimate legislative purpose it's political it's fishing it's it 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 is abusing the role of the congress um and we'll see what happens yeah i find right. it, and, i find it hard to imagine the president's going to win that battle um, the the president is litigious to say the least, and but also legally cautious when he's d- doing his best to preserve his 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 own finances. The fact that all of these finances, while he will put them under the the hierarchy of these personal finances, there is no part of me that believes Donald Trump has not incorporated everything possible. Meaning his personal finances, the corporation is different from him himself. And that's to, in theory, protect him himself and his personal finances. And the Washington, excuse me, not the Washington Post, both the New York Times and Washington Post uh, have talked about that the president literally has hundreds of incorporated businesses in part to shield him from personal liability. The idea that the, in Justice Rehnquist's words, that the legal fiction of creating corporate entities can somehow now, in addition, protect the the purveyors or the those who incorporate it personally is insane to me. And I it, I think the president's going to lose ground and lose ground quickly on a bunch of different fronts there for his personal finances. I will be genuinely surprised if any court upholds it. I, 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 I'm intrigued with Dan's certainty. Um, I, I don't know how this will come out, but I don't think it's the slam dunk that, that Dan does. Um, because I think there's a pretty strong case that can be made that that this is a fishing expedition by the Congress. They've really got to and and, and Congress and is allowed to go fishing, and that's and that may be enough. But it's it's hard to to say we're going to go we're going to go fi- we the Congress are going to go fishing in the personal finances of the president. If we'll if, see if, if how only this were, there weren't a constitutional on, claim on, at play as well. No, no, th- this this needs to be played out be, because the emoluments cl- clause issue at play. And since we also know the facts that used to be public about the Trump Hotel on on uh, Pennsylvania Avenue that were horrendous and there were public, uh, <laughs> there were liens against it for bills not being made. And seemingly those stories all ended uh, as far as the facts that they had at the start of the pr- Trump presidency. Uh, because I'm going to go out on a limb and say maybe the president's businesses may have improved in some fronts or that business in particular. There's been plenty of reporting saying that the president frequently would ask visitors where they were staying. And if the answer was not the Trump Hotel, uh, those meetings did not go quite as well. So the idea that Trump, the president, excuse me, the idea that the Congress doesn't have legitimate purpose to investigate, to see what the finances and to see if any money has been exchanged there. Is, is is sort of comical. No, 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 Stranger no, no, things no, no, happen. No, no, no. But, 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 but there's a difference between saying we want to see the finances of 
the Trump Hotel in downtown Washington, D.C., where we know that a lot of foreign governments and others and, and domestic uh, uh, corporations with interests before the government, uh, mergers that they're trying to, to achieve uh, are holding meetings there, are using, are, are, are using the hotel. And might that uh, uh, be a violation of the so-called emolu- emoluments clause pro- profiting personally from being president? But that's not what they're seeking, they're seeking, seeking all of it. Everything. They're seeking what? information on the hundreds, who knows how many different uh, entities. And so that that there's but, a difference between saying Alan, right, we're but, looking. But, but that's at, also part oh, of the deal. You generally go for after as much as you can get. Well, if you're dialed oh, back from that oh, point, oh, oh, so oh, be oh, it. But oh, you go after as much as oh, you can get. Oh, I understand why they're going after it. I'm just you're saying you think they're going to get it all, and I say I don't. So I'm not so sure they're going to get it all. I'll, I'll be interested to see how it plays out. I don't know the answer. Well, the, the, well, the thing about it is the the thing we have to realize. How many private businesses are allowed, allowed have... to assert this kind of privilege? Before say Congress. that again. I mean, I'm going to look to Alan on this question. How many businesses, and I'm certain you've been in meetings where businesses had things made public that they wish were not, that were subpoenaed by Congress. How many private businesses? Now, this is important. This is separate from the president being the president, how many private businesses, when business deals or any information about their internal workings had been subpoenaed before Congress, successfully fought Congress's right to know? And the difference is, it's worth noting, the public embarrassment for a business, this is not a personhood, a public embarrassment for a business is different from what might occur in a court of law. Just because Congress was able to bring the information in does not necessarily mean something would be admissible in a court of law. So I'm not well, certain what this answer is. I find it hard Dan, to believe many businesses Dan, have ever been able to fight a congressional subpoena. But, but, but most Dan, businesses... hold on, hold on, hold on, everybody. Hold on for a second. Dan, let me address that. Because if you look at what Ju- uh, Judge Maida put in her, uh, or put in his response in the 41-page ruling out of the district court, the question was, are these legitimate legislative purposes what the court said is that it is not for the court to question whether the committee's actions are motivated by political considerations they're just saying they have the authority to ask for what they want as part of oversight now if the question now becomes is will it be in fact a higher court and ultimately the supreme court that is going to have to make the decision what is uh, motivated by political considerations? Because that's a very, very fine line. Rich Rubino, do you agree? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, you know, I would just say in terms of um, this whole idea of a fishing expedition, it reminded me a little bit of um, when Calvin Coolidge was fishing in Wisconsin, and they asked him how many um, – they asked him how many how many how many trout are in the river, and he said about forty five thousand. He said they haven't caught any of them, but I've intimidated them all. <laughs> 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 um, and it's fascinating too, you know. They, they did, cause I say fishing expedition because usually the term I hear is witch hunt. And there was, um, you know, I know Seth Moulton, when the congressman from uh, Massachusetts was able to really exploit that, he said, you know, I happen to represent Salem, Massachusetts, and I can tell you this is not a witch hunt. But, um, you know, it's just interesting how you see that here the same terms from administration to administration. And you go back, and certainly the Clinton administration during the Whitewater hearings, you heard a lot of the same things. But, you know, obviously there'll be something to try to offset that there will be political considerations. But I think that obviously, you know, in terms of there, in terms of, there are there certainly are political considerations, and in terms and one political consideration I think for Republicans is 
Uh, they continue to defend Donald Trump when he continues to say that the reason he can't release his tax returns is because they're under audit when there's nothing in the – when there's certainly no statute that allows that from happening. I don't know how, that, how he's going to continue to kind of get away with that. And, and Dan Lipner, let me ask you this question. Is, is the court going to be walking a slippery slope if it does start to play in the realm of deciding what is, as uh, Judge Mehta put it, uh, uh, political considerations? Yeah. I mean, the courts generally hate getting involved. The, the, the term of art is called a political question. And if the courts can to can rest their decisions on actual law, they are sure as hell going to do that whenever possible. And so at, to, to Rich's point, the tax returns, the law at hand is remarkably simply written <laughs> that the committee chairs can simply request and the Treasury Department shall provide. There, there, there is no legitimacy argument. It is shall provide. It's pretty straightforward. Um, the idea that a, the courts are going to step in to rewrite this, again, it could happen. But I find it so difficult to believe that they want any part of it. And while I have no faith in, 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 in Clarence Thomas on the court, I— Again, even Alito and Roberts, I find it impossible to believe, if it made it all the way to the Supreme Court, that they're not just going to look at this and say, yeah, Congress wrote this. It could have been vetoed back uh, whenever who was in office could have not signed it. But that is the law of the land as it is right now. We're not getting involved with this. That's the law. Do it. Now, the question, if they continue to ignore uh, the request for those records and whether or not the president just chooses to repeatedly pardon the people who are, refuse to uh, comply with that. That's a different constitutional crisis in question, something that I would not put put past this president. But it is, it, it is a series of challenging problems. So uh, and by the way, uh, by the way, hold on. We just got we just, we just got some new news into uh, the backroom politics newsroom. Uh, it appears that uh, Hope Hicks and several others have been subpoenaed in order to testify in front of uh, Jerry Nadler's committee coming up. Hope Hicks being ordered to appear to testify by June 19th. And Don McGann's chief of staff has also been subpoenaed. His appearance is scheduled for it's her. It's June. It's a woman. She's the woman who wrote, did, kept all the notes. Right. I'm sorry. You're right. So, so his chief of staff is being uh, asked to appear, and she's got to appear on June 24th. Uh, let, let, me, let me say one thing to, to Dan's comment okay. about the law about uh, relating to a tax return. The law is clear, and the law, the law dates back to Teapot Dome, um, a famous scandal, um, you know, 80 years ago uh, or so. Um, and Alan was also and, around for. I was not, but I, <laughs> but I, but I've read a little bit about it, and I'm forgetting all the details. But, but the point was at 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 that time where there was where where there was uh, some illegal activity of money f- flowing into somebody's pocket, and they couldn't get a hold of the tax returns. They just they passed a law. Um, uh, because the president had the ability to look at tax returns at that time, um, and and they decided to give the the power to the to to the two chairs of of the oversight committees in the House and the Senate. 
Uh, later, they removed the ability of the president to do that. That was another another law change, uh, compliments of Richard Nixon. Um, and and uh, but they didn't remove the authority from from the uh, from the Congress. If the Supreme Court were to look at that, it wouldn't say. It, it, I think the statute's pretty clear. The question is whether there's some basis to find that statute unconstitutional. I'm not saying there is, but that would be a reason for the court to look and for the outcome to be unknown. Rich Rubino, do you think that's a slippery slope unto itself, Rich? I'm sorry? Do you think that's a slippery slope is going down the constitutional authority of them seeking the uh, tax documents from the president. It's whether the, whether the law is constitutional. Whether the law is constitutional or not. No, I don't. No, I don't think so. I think that um, I think that you know any Congress would certainly ask that of any president, assuming that they're in the other party, even if perhaps if they're in the same party. I don't see that as being a. Um, I don't see that as necessarily being a slippery slope. No. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of elements on this, and not to mention. Uh, Tax, tax returns didn't used to be private. <laughs> that's, a, right. that's a comparatively new thing in American history. Uh, the, the, the false humility of, of the of the wealth is is, is something new there. But Nixon yeah. Was the last, yeah, Nixon was the last president who would not re-release his tax returns. Every president since then has. Oh, very true. Good point. Hey, uh, that's all for this segment. Uh, on behalf of Dan Lipner, Alan Moore in studio, Rich Rubino, thanks for joining us as always. Love having you. Uh, we've got uh, Rob the Engineer, Eric Thomas, our producer. Thank you guys for keeping us honest. I'm your host, moderator, Justin Russell. Hey, by the way, you can follow us on Twitter, at Backroom Politics. You can also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Radio. You can also follow us on Instagram. You can also download us as a podcast on some of your favorite podcasting uh, applications, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, and even Spotify. Yeah, what kind of a big deal? Have a great week, America. We'll talk to you on the next episode. Bye-bye.